when you make something, no matter what it is, really, it has such a higher value to us than if we just bought it, you know, from the shop. Um, even though we don't necessarily spend as much money on it, the the kind of sentimental value that it has to us is so much higher. Um, you know, somebody baking you a cake for your birthday means so much more than, you know, than just sort of pop into the shop to go and get one. And it's because of the effort and the love and the time that has gone into that. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today I'm speaking with material scientist, writer and podcaster Anna Porshysky. Anna is the author of the book Handmade, a scientist search for meaning through making. Through stand-up comedy and talking about materials, Anna came to see how her perspective on the stuff that surrounds us differs from that of people who don't usually hang out in a lab. For one, people make choices about materials that might baffle those who study their chemical makeup and structure. So Anna took a journey through the world of materials, focusing instead on the work of artisans and craftspeople. She's tried her hand at working with steel with a blacksmith and sculpting recycled plastic with an artist. Along the way, Anna excavated stories from across history. She'll share some of those and the connections she's found between materials and identity. Thanks so much for joining me, Anna. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to talk to you. Yeah. Will you tell me about the first material that fascinated you? Oh, that's a great question. So my journey into material science was a little bit of a mistake. I got into it because I was applying to universities to study physics. One of the unis that I applied to was Oxford. And in the year that I applied for physics, the Department of Materials was really low on applicants because it's not a subject that is very well publicized. There are only, I think, seven universities in the UK that even offer it at undergraduate level. So they were very low on applicants. And so they invited the physics interviewees to apply for to interview for both physics and material science. So I wanted to maximize my chances of getting into Oxford and took them up on their offer to interview for both subjects. And it just so happened that they offered me uh, a place to study materials rather than physics. So when I went to university to study my undergraduate in material science, I really had no idea at all what it was, what it was about, what the curriculum was. I'd obviously done a bit of Googling, but I'd sort of prioritized going to Oxford over the specifics of the subject that I was going to be studying. But when I got there, I was really pleasantly surprised because I'm, I've always been quite a practical person and always enjoyed the aspects of science that interface with our daily experiences. And there are definitely elements of physics that do that. But materials is much more closely aligned with engineering than it is with the very kind of technical, mathematical, scientific aspects. Although there certainly are those aspects to material science as well. So that's a very long answer into your question of what was the first material that really stood out to me. I think coming at material science as a budding physicist made me very drawn to the very sort of physical aspects of materials. So the physical properties that we experience of them in our everyday lives and also the physics that underpin those. So a really good example of an of an early material that I studied that kind of got me interested in materials in the first place was glass. Glass is a material that we we all experience, we all know, we all love in our daily lives. But the study of glass is very rooted in, you know, quantum mechanics and wave mechanics and how light and matter interact at the tiniest scales of atoms and actually what are inside atoms, the electrons, the nucleus, you know, how these very, very tiny charged particles interact with light. Understanding that physics tells us why glass is a transparent material, which is a very everyday property that we don't even tend to really put much thought into in our everyday lives. And so it was putting the, the mathematical physics and the kind of very hardcore quantum mechanics theory to these everyday lived experiences that really sort of um, it really drove home to me what material science is as a subject. It's applying the science to our everyday material world. Yeah, that's great. And that sort of serves as a good intro for what material science is to those who don't really know what it is. Um, do you remember what it was like to first think about glass from this different physics-y, materials science -y perspective? 
There were, there were several kind of eureka moments for me. <laughs> I think one of the first was actually just asking the question, you know, why is glass transparent? We hear at school that, you know, atoms are mostly empty space. This is something that we hear scientists say quite a lot in the media. And, you know, when we're at school, we learn that atoms are mostly empty space. And so actually, if light is coming along and interacting or hitting objects, hitting solid objects, actually, the question isn't why is glass transparent, but why aren't all materials transparent? Because if it's mostly empty space, then what is the light hitting inside those materials that causes it to bounce off and therefore causes those materials to be opaque? And that was a real kind of mind-blowing question to me because I'd never really questioned the physical world around me. You know, we go about our lives and we don't tend to bother ourselves with these types of very fundamental questions because if we did, we would never be able to function. (laughs) We would be constantly hounded by all these very, very basic things that we take for granted in our everyday lives. Asking that question, you know, why aren't all materials transparent? That was a real wake up moment for me. Um, And what's the answer to that? (laughs) The answer to that is that, um, well, there's a couple of reasons as to why glass is a transparent material. The first is that the way that the molecules of glass exist inside glass is quite akin to a liquid. So by that, I mean, there's no real order or structure to the molecules inside glass. So which is the same as in a liquid. So if we imagine a liquid, like let's say water, in water, our H2O molecules, our water molecules are all kind of swimming around in a very sort of jumbled up fashion. Um, and you can imagine that as the water sort of sloshes around inside your washing up bowl at home. You can imagine those molecules sort of swimming about and not really having any kind of strict and rigid system or order to them. That is also the case in glass, but glass is a solid material usually um, when we interact with it. And the reason that it's a solid that still has this very disordered, chaotic molecular structure is that the molecules have very strong bonds between them. So it's almost as if our molecules in water have kind of been frozen in time exactly where they were when they were sloshing about. And these bonds have kind of grown between them to hold them in that weird, chaotic structure. So what that means is that when light comes and hits glass, um, there is no there's no sort of internal boundaries or internal kind of mistakes in the structure because there is no structure. It's just this kind of big, distorted, chaotic mess. Now, that's not the case for other materials, a material like um, copper or you know a metal. These materials tend to be. Um, crystalline we describe them as crystalline and what that means at an atomic level at the very smallest scales of how these materials are built is that the atoms inside something like a metal are usually lined up in a very neat and ordered crystalline structure which means that in three dimensions they're in these beautiful rows and columns a bit like um sort of a grid almost but in three dimensions and at each point in that grid you've got a molecule sitting there inside the material And usually with materials like metals, they're made up of these ordered crystals, but they're actually made up of lots and lots and lots of those crystals all kind of smushed together. Um, So each of those individual crystals has a boundary with its neighbor. And when you have a boundary like that inside a material, that's a point where light gets scattered. So when when um, when a light molecule well we'll go into that later maybe when when light comes across in and sort of hits metal what happens is it it interacts with those boundaries between the grains between those different grains of crystals and that is what causes the light to scatter and scattering light can be thought of as it kind of just bouncing off and when light bounces off stuff and enters our eyes we observe it as being opaque right that's a great example of how what's going on with the atoms inside something or the molecules inside something changes our experience of it. So why did you go on a journey of exploring materials through making them? This all came about because I started doing public science work during my PhD. 
I got really interested in, you know, taking material science out of universities and into the experience of the general public through doing things like public talks. I did stand up comedy about materials, um, visiting schools and telling them about the amazing stuff that I was learning about. And I started to develop a sort of profile, I suppose, of being a materials expert. Right? I knew about all of the theory and the graphs and the formulae and all of the scientific side of materials. Um, then about four years ago, one day I walked into a department at the university that I was studying at UCL in London. And I had this sudden epiphany that actually I was supposed to be an expert in materials, but really I knew very little. And this epiphany was walking into this department called the Institute of Making. And the Institute of Making is a very unusual department. It's sort of half scientific materials department, but a half make space workshop. And so the people that come there are material scientists and engineers, but also artists and craftspeople and historians and anthropologists and people that study all studying stuff, all studying materials, but from lots and lots of different perspectives. So in the Institute of Making, they have what they call the materials library. And this is a collection of over a thousand objects made of the whole plethora of materials and representing all sorts of different making processes as well. And when I walked into the materials library and I looked at a teacup and I looked at a piece of barbed wire and I looked at a rubber duck, <laughs> I suddenly realized that although I knew all of the theory and the formulae behind these, these materials, I knew absolutely nothing about how they came to be, about how they were made, the processes that shaped them, that formed them, the histories behind them and kind of where they'd come from historically and sociologically. And so I realized that actually my knowledge of materials, of, you know, relating the atomic scale stuff to our engineering human scale stuff was just really one tiny piece of that puzzle of materials. And so that then sent me down the path of seeking out people with materials knowledge that was very different from my own. So the crafts people, the makers, the historians, the anthropologists, and interviewing, interviewing them and finding out exactly what their knowledge base was and how they thought about this stuff. Because only then did I realize, would I actually become a quote unquote materials expert? So that's what I set out to do. I set out to interview them. I started a podcast where I just met and chatted to these brilliant materials experts about the stuff that they knew about. Sure. Yeah. I want to ask you one other question about your um, journey to writing this book and making materials. But um, what was it like to do stand-up comedy around materials? What was, you know, what's something that you found funny that you would share with your audiences about materials? The main thing I learned through doing stand-up comedy about materials was actually the stuff that I was learning in learning about a university about materials was not really the concern of the general public when it comes to materials so I would stand up and I might say something like oh isn't it weird that glass is transparent and then go all down that <laughs> route um, and actually what the people in the public were saying to me was oh it's really annoying when my iPhone screen smashes after only three weeks of owning it why do we make iPhone screens out of glass like why can't we make them out of plastic why does it have to be this substance that is so easily breakable and that smashes all the time and is quite sort of fragile those are the types of concerns and I have to be honest with you like I didn't really have a good answer for them at that time you know I don't really know why phone screens are made out of glass scientifically we could easily make them out of plastic but we don't we make them out of glass and why is that well what I came to realize through interviewing non-scientific materials experts was that it's far more to do with human choices and human desires and our desire for a mobile phone that feels expensive and feels sort of high class and gives that sort of human, the, the touch aspects, the kind of haptics of interacting with a screen made of glass is very different from a screen made of plastic. And there's no formula that describes that, right? This is all kind of <laughs> um, very unpredictable human stuff which is quite intimidating as a material scientist who can just measure everything they want to in a laboratory experiment. <laughs> sure, it's not um, necessarily the most practical choice. Yeah, exactly. It's not the most practical, but it's the one that we want. And so that's what it is. And so that, that, those types of questions, the questions that my audience were asking of me, 
um, really opens my eyes as to actually what the important stuff is in materials. Maybe it's not all in the lab. Maybe it's actually finding out why we make material choices that we do. They're not necessarily the most scientifically sound, as you say. But if it's what the consumers want, then that is what it ends up being. And there are lots of examples of, you know, other material concerns that the public have currently. Waste is a really good example. Plastic waste, single use plastics, we're talking about a lot at the moment. And it's so important for us scientists to be able to appreciate the driving forces of public concern with materials, because that can drive good research at the end of the day. Sure. That actually all sounds kind of heavy for what I think was a comedic pursuit. Um, <laughs> was <laughs> there anything that was surprisingly funny that that came to you through that experience? Well, what I learned through doing it was that actually I'm not really a one-liner comedian. Sure. Um, you know, I, I have written silly puns to do with materials and I, ha- I have gone down the one-liner route, but if your task is to fill nine minutes with comedy it takes a lot of one-liners to get up to nine minutes right that was my usual set length so what I started doing was storytelling and telling longer form funny stories about what it's like to be a scientist about how we think about materials which is perhaps different and surprising compared to what the public are expecting and that was really my masterclass in getting going with the theory behind storytelling and what it means to tell a good story and how to connect with audiences using those techniques. Yeah, I see. Um, so going back to the book, why talk to artisans, you know, as opposed to researchers? What were some of the perspectives that these craftspeople and other um, working experts gave you? It, they gave me a very refreshing break from <laughs> talking to other researchers. I think one of the things that I learned was that a lot of them had developed their skills through practice and um, through, you know, personal experimentation with materials, through um, sort of apprenticeships and practical expertise, as opposed to the theoretical academic side that I knew about. So I wanted to talk to someone who had as different a perspective as me a different a background as me which is why I reached out to you know a blacksmith as opposed to a steel researcher or you know someone like that so really somebody that understands how these materials behave under the hand what it really means to work with them I really wanted their perspectives sure yeah um let's talk about steel that was one of my favorite chapters in the book um, oh thanks yeah, how did you how did you see the history of that material reflected in your working with it? Steel was a really interesting one because my first exposure to steel was in a very extreme environment. When I was at uni, I had the amazing opportunity to be part of an engineering team attempting to break a land speed record on the Bonneville Salt Flats, sort of between Nevada and Utah out in the States. And it was it was a crazy single week long task of can we break a land speed record using this you know category of car that is designed to go very very fast but the engineering components themselves were all retrofitted into that vehicle so we were constantly asking these engineering components to go way beyond what they were designed to do and the, my exposure to steel there was all to do with basically things kept breaking. <laughs> all the components in our engine kept breaking, as you might imagine. Um, we were trying to make a one liter Kawasaki motorbike engine go above 300 miles an hour. <laughs> mm. This stuff is not really designed for those purposes. And so, yeah, things kept breaking. Um, and one of the things that broke was components in the gearbox. Basically, the fourth gear kind of cog inside the gearbox got completely stripped of all of its little rigid teeth on the side of it. Um, and there were some really interesting sort of materially interesting, scientifically interesting fracture modes, kind of fracture um, patterns that happened when that steel broke. And it was the first time that I was able to really apply what I'd been learning theoretically during my undergraduate to a real life situation where something had physically broken and could we work out why? And if we could work out why, then could we maybe stop it breaking in the future? But that experience on the salt flats of America was also a very 
kind of alienating one because I was, you know, 20 years old, long blonde hair, a woman, vegetarian, studying for a degree in, at Oxford in material science. And everyone else on the team was a middle-aged car mechanic from Glasgow up in Scotland. And it was a very odd team dynamic. And I felt conscious of how I looked to them and, you know, how they were um, the practical hands-on people. And really, again, I knew nothing about how you would fix an engine. I just knew the theory of why steel could break. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was a very uncomfortable, in my, it felt to me very an uncomfortable team dynamic, as well as being a very macho environment. You know, the Bonneville Salt Flats are a place where engineering teams from all over the world come for this week in August every year to try and break land speed records. But inevitably, it's mostly men. They're mostly you know, very practical hands-on people, which was not my comfort zone at all. So my first exposure to steel then was very macho, quite um, inhospitable to somebody like me at the time. And when I started writing the story of steel for the book, that's where I started was my first exposure to it outside of my kind of academic comfort zone. And where it led me to was a blacksmith's workshop ironically up in Glasgow actually um but this time it was a very unmacho experience I spoke to a blacksmith called Agnes Jones who is about the same age as me she's sort of a late 20s early 30s um and she's an artist blacksmith so her work is to create beauty and art out mm-hmm. of the material of steel what kind of so I, objects are those that, she, that Agnes so, A lot of it is sculptural. Um, She also does kind of gates and benches, um, so sort of stairwells. It's it's still kind of functional stuff, but Mm. the aim is is aesthetics. Um, And so she quite often does her sculptural stuff is kind of line. She describes it as line drawing, but with steel. So it's sort of thin thin bars of steel that are bent in such a way as to produce an image. She's done a lot of sort of life drawings of kind of female moods out of um steel <laughs> out of lines of steel um it's incredibly beautiful work and it's so far removed from this very very macho environment that mm. I first encountered steel in so you know spending a day with Agnes and witnessing a sort of small Scottish woman <laughs> master steel in a blacksmith's forge and you know use the force of her body through a hammer to shape you know, glowing hot steel, you would picture that as being something that required, you know, macho strength to be able to do. But she is able to work as a woman in that field and really make her mark on this stuff. And I found that so inspiring, also coming from a relatively male dominated field of science, Um, seeing a woman really thrive and make an impact in a um, in an area like that it was just very kind of yeah humbling and inspiring to see and so through Agnes I really got a glimpse of this other sort of feminine side of steel and then I started learning about all the other areas in which um, steel has been impacted by the work of women during the second world war in this country when all of the men had kind of gone off you know to kind of be in the army to be in the armed forces the women were the ones left working in the factories so um there's a city in the middle of the uk called sheffield and that is a real steel hub it's where so much steel industry has been historically based and during the second world war the women of sheffield they were the ones building the the munitions and the you know the shells the bullets everything that was required to be made out of steel they were the ones making that stuff in the forge and after the war when the men came back from war and resumed their jobs in these factories the women were kind of ousted from their work they'd gained all of these practical hand skills they could do blacksmithing they could do the iron pouring but they were suddenly no longer needed and so their contribution was sort of forgotten and not really recognized until recently you know historians now are going back and kind of writing that wrong and actually making the work of these women much more celebrated because it was a really vital part of the the war effort in in this country was 
was thanks to these women of steel. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a bit about glass. We've talked a bit about steel. Another material that I found interesting in the book is plastic, um, and one that is so large a part of our modern everyday lives. Um, would you mind telling me about your experience visiting the plastic working artist um, that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to spend the afternoon with an artist called James Shaw, who works here in London. Um, and he he makes plastic sculptures, really. But what's fascinating about his work is firstly that he makes all of the um, sort of processing instruments himself. So when I went to visit him, he showed me this giant plastic extruder that he had built himself out of components. And you sort of put plastic in at one end and it goes through this sort of heated screw where it gets hotter and more compressed. And it's then kind of extruded out of this almost like a kind of sausage machine. <laughs> it's extruded like out, out of this hot kind of, plastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hot plastic gets sort of squirted out the end um, into sort of a sausage like shape. Um, and he then creates sculptures and pieces out of that. But what was fascinating about his work as well was that he uses only recycled plastics as his raw materials. And not only are they recycled, but they're actually completely useless <laughs> plastics. They're, this is stuff that is rejected by recycling companies because it is in some way contaminated. Um, either through kind of little particles of stones or, you know, just actually through pigments. Um, as consumers, we don't want our plastics to look like they're dirty <laughs> or, you know, we want kind of usually pure white packaging or completely transparent packaging to see that the food we're buying is definitely completely clean. And so any of these recycled plastics that have contamination of, you know, different colored bottle tops or, like I say, these little kind of stones or other materials that are in that mix that renders that entire ton of plastic waste completely useless to them it's not financially worth it for them to go through and pick out the the bits and contaminant so james actually gets given this stuff by recycling companies for free because they just want him to take it off their hands and so his work really sits at the point of upcycling waste recycled plastic um, and, you know, adding extra value back into this material, which, to be honest, is one of the most amazing materials that we've ever invented as human beings. It's at the time of its invention in the sort of early 20th century, it wasn't believed that that combination of material properties was possible. You know, extremely lightweight, mm. but extremely cheap, extremely chemically resistant, rigid or flexible. Um, you know, it was kind of this really amazing wonder material that we never thought was possible before was suddenly possible thanks to chemists and material scientists who'd invented it in the lab. Um, and now we use plastic as almost a disposable commodity, don't we? You know, it's so prevalent in our single-use packaging and single-use products. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a completely bad and evil thing. <laughs> um, I know there are people out there that would like to see plastic abolished from the face of the earth, but unfortunately that isn't really practical from our for our sort of modern world. You know, we do need plastics. They do have this incredible combination of material properties. Unfortunately what's happened is that because they're able to be made so cheaply and because they are so useful, we have been able to make them so well and so cheaply that they are now basically rendered useless. Um, so we're able to make objects that are designed to be used only once and then thrown away. And that's a really, really unsustainable and um, inefficient way of using materials, using you know physical substances. Um, so going back to what I said at the start about learning about the human side of materials, that's something that the writing the book really opened my eyes to was like, it's all well and good me as a material scientist sitting here in my ivory tower saying that plastics are amazing. They're amazing materials properties. We should, you know, continue celebrating and using them. But if we don't understand why we do want to use them and why it's important that we use them, but why it's also important that we understand why people 
don't like to see them in the season, don't like to see so much waste piling up in our landfill sites, um, then we will never be able to have a sensible conversation about what the best thing to do is going forward from this point. Yeah. So, so oh, no, go on. I was going to ask what the next chapter of that story is, whether from a material scientist perspective or from a social scientist perspective. Yeah. yeah what's what's being done at this intersection of waste, plastic and materials properties? So I think we are all agreed that we need to be moving away from single use plastics. Right. We are all agreed that we need to be keeping materials in their in use for as long as possible. So getting away from single uses is definitely unanimously agreed as a good thing to do. What's less clear is, firstly, how do we do that? And secondly, um, where does this stuff come from and where might it end up? Now, one of the real kind of success stories in this area that's been going on over the last couple of years is the pressure on um, the producers of these products to take more responsibility in terms of where their materials are coming from, how the consumers are using them, and then where they end up at the end of the useful life. Um, and now there's a huge pressure um, in the UK called the right to repair. I'm sure it's over in the States as well. And this is the idea that consumers have the right to be able to repair the objects that come into their care. Um, you know, we see so often that, well, a phone is a really good example. You know, our phones are actually really only designed to last for the length of a phone contract and maybe a little bit after <laughs> before, you know, the things start getting cracked and it starts running too slow and the software doesn't work as well as it should. And so then we then upgrade and all those materials then go into waste or attempted to be recycled. And we as consumers are now saying, actually, that's not good enough. You know, the number of components in that object are not reflected in how long the device is designed to be used for. And actually what we want is to be able to repair it. So if it's just the camera that's broken, why can't we just be able to re repair that part of that object and continue using the rest of the components? So it's about um, elongating the lifetime of these objects that are in our care. And also at the end of their life, you know, how can we make sure that each of those components is recycled and can then go off and, you know, play a part in what we call a circular economy, making sure that these materials don't end up in sort of dead areas like landfill, where they're just going to be put in the ground and then forgotten and ignored. Um, and there's really positive pushes now by consumers on producers to give us this right to repair and to let us get our, you know, home toolkit out and open up our toaster or open up our um, phone or laptop and start repairing this stuff rather than just giving it to us as this kind of black box that we don't understand how it works and so don't have any empowerment really to repair it when it goes wrong. I think I see that as a really positive move. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I like how the materials in the book have histories that span ancient to modern. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of clay and about pottery as a technology? Um, what did the invention of pottery uh, allow people to do that they hadn't been able to do before? Yeah, so clay is such a fascinating material. You know, if you go to any museum around the world, you'll almost certainly see clay that is, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years old, right? This is one of our oldest friends. Um, and the reason that we've been using it for so long is that, firstly, it's very widely available in basically anywhere where there is earth. <laughs> you can dig out some clay. And secondly, it has really useful materials properties, specifically um, the ability to be able to withstand heat. Um, and, you know, even from our most ancient roots, we have always wanted to kind of heat up our food for all sorts of health reasons. It's beneficial to do that. Um, and so to be able to have vessels that can contain hot food and drinks has always been, you know, really, really useful to us. So the craft of making, the craft of turning clay from the ground into ceramic material through the process of shaping and then firing is a really, really ancient one. And we still, you know, celebrate clay and ceramics for that 
purpose today. You know, I start every single day with a nice hot cup of tea in a ceramic mug. I'm sure many of us do the same, be it coffee or tea um, or hot chocolate even. Um, And we don't think about it. We don't think about the fact that when we hold our hands around a mug of hot drink, that our hands are just a couple of millimeters away from really scalding hot liquid unless you happen to pour that liquid down you and burn yourself <laughs> um we don't really appreciate the amazing insulating thermally insulating properties that that clay provides us um and this is a technology as i say that we've had for sort of thousands of years but this thermally insulating property of clay has also been used by um very high tech engineers as well so one of the opportunities that i got during my PhD was to go and work at the NASA Kennedy Space Center down in Florida. And the labs that I was working in were um, sort of hired out by the company that I was working for here in the UK at the time. We had a little kind of US-based lab as well. And I was working on clays actually as well for their kind of absorbing properties um, and trying uh, trying to make sort of filters, gas filters um, for my experiments. So while I was there, I went to the sort of NASA Kennedy Visitor Center, you know, the bit that you can go to as a tourist. And as part of that, they have the Atlantis Space Shuttle Exhibition, which is where they have the actual space shuttle Atlantis kind of displayed in this huge warehouse. And you can go around and learn about all the different materials in it. You can see inside, um, learn about this, the spacesuits and, you know, all the good kind of NASA stuff that we all want to know about. Um, but the thing that really stuck with me was what was on the outside of these space shuttles so as you walk the length of the space shuttle you can see these kind of scorch marks on the underside which is testament to the extreme heat of re-entry that these space shuttles had to withstand as they brought their astronauts safely home through the earth's atmosphere from outer space And the challenge that the engineers faced when they were trying to think of how can we get our astronauts back down safely was that when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, your vessel, whatever you're in, your spacecraft, will heat up to over a thousand degrees Celsius, well over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. You know, it's extremely hot to do this. We see shooting stars. That's when, you know, rocks and stuff fall through the Earth's atmosphere. Rocks will break up and burn doing this. So the question is, how do we engineer something that won't break up and burn, <laughs> that is more kind of hardy than a space rock to keep our astronauts safe? And the engineers at NASA turned to the ancient material of clay and of ceramics, because this is a fantastically, as I say, insulating material. What they did was they engineered um, a silica-based ceramic, which is similar material to glass, um, and they made a composite out of it. So they had this sort of glass or ceramic tile that had very, very fine fibers of silica inside it. And what that gave them was a really effective way of shielding heat. Now, these tiles were only about four inches or so across, you know, a really, really narrow distance. But the ceramic engineering that they were able to do on it meant that the outside of that tile was over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, but the inside was about uh i think it oh i'd have to check this it was cold enough anyway that the astronauts didn't burn up (laughs) so it it left them comfortable enough that the that the aluminium shell underneath those tiles of the spacecraft was Mm -hmm. completely unaffected and could safely bring the astronauts back down to earth and so you know from the ancient to the hyper high tech this material of ceramic has been able to serve us as humans for thousands and thousands of years. And I'm very confident that it will continue to do so well into the future. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so in writing this book, did you see ways that the different histories of materials intersected with each other? Yeah, all the time. And and learning how materials traveled around the world throughout our history was something that was really fascinating. In the Western education that I've had, you would be forgiven for thinking that, you know, the Victorians in London basically invented all of the technology that we've ever had, right? At least that's the education system here. You know, we learned that the Victorians invented steel, they built the railways, all of this stuff. And it's very, very Western centric. 
well, actually, when you go back and look at it, that is kind of the only point in history when the Europeans have really been ahead in technology at mm. all. In, in ancient history, actually, um, Chinese technologies have been you know, massively pioneering. The Chinese invented um, paper. That was one of their kind of big exports. Also ceramics, of course. Mm. Uh, China pottery was was totally um, their, you know, major technological export um, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and so observing this kind of decentralized technological um, evolution was really interesting and eye-opening. And one of the things that I really tried to do in the book was to get away from this very Eurocentric narrative of, you know, we invented science, we invented maths, we invented history, because it's just not true. You know, there were so many other brilliant and valuable um, contributions to this history of materials. Um, so, you know, in my steel chapter, I really wanted to mention the Inuit people who found ancient shards of steel in um in meteorites they, they had oh, some you know okay. the, some of the first people to work with steel were actually these Inuit who lived on the Greenland ice sheet they found this stuff and they worked with it and they developed processes to you know use this steel what did they make well, out of it um anyone did here they did stuff like um they only had the ability to kind of cold work it so in other words work with the material at sort of normal temperatures they didn't heat it up but they used sort of hard materials like stones to beat it flat and they made kind of sharp blades and kind of cutting tools out of steel centuries before it was kind of reinvented um in the west um and in china as well they were so um well ahead of us in terms of working with cast iron and and other steels as well um, there's an amazing story about um, Iron Age Sri Lankans who the, the problem with steel, right, is that um, it's iron doesn't come in its kind of native form in the earth. The only way to get iron is to heat up rocks that contain iron to very high temperatures and use clever chemistries to extract the iron out of those rocks. We call those ores. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot of temperature and a lot of sort of reducing agents you know these kind of carbon like materials that will suck off the sort of rocky materials and leave um leave the iron alone so that you can extract it that takes a lot of kind of technology and when we eventually developed this um in europe the way that we did that was to use these kind of hand operated fans called bellows to drive oxygen into a furnace to make the fires burn hotter and then to make the rocks hot enough to release that iron out of them. Um, Well, centuries before that, Iron Age Sri Lankans developed the process of using what they had available to them to do that for them. And they built these furnaces on the top of hills that were facing the kind of incoming strong monsoon winds um, in Sri Lanka. And so their furnaces they these winds didn't blow into holes at the bottom of the furnace they actually created a shape that would blow the winds over the top of the furnace and using extremely advanced aerodynamics create a kind of vacuum at the top of the furnace which then drew air in at the bottom in order to drive up the temperatures of their furnace you know it's an ingenious design um and it was invented entirely independently (laughs) by iron age people living in sri lanka and so i really wanted to tell these kind of stories that are are more unknown and unheard of um at least in kind of the western canon of how materials became developed sure um was there a time in the history of materials that you found particularly moving that's interesting. I think the one that I found most affecting was learning about the period in which the trade of materials um, was so it was you know incredibly politicized. I'm talking now about the transatlantic slave trade. One of my um, chapters in the book was about sugar, and mm-hmm. sugar was completely integral to um, the transatlantic slave trade, and it was the Europeans' greed of money and of sugar um, that was really one of the justifying factors as to how that 
you know, completely abhorrent practice was so well established for such a shamefully long time. And we think of sugar, we, we often don't make that link between sugar and sort of that horrible history, but also the economic outcome of that was that the people driving that industry in Europe became unfathomably wealthy through this horrendous practice. But as a result of that, all of that wealth that ended up here um, was what paid for the development of other materials. You know, it was it was the wealthy elite that could afford the scientific education and could afford the investment in technologies like um, blast furnaces and the steel industry. So all of these industries that I was learning about that were based in the country that I live in have this really dark, sinister financial past to them. And I found that really eye-opening and it really recontextualized for me the um, the history of the materials, but also the wealth and the power and where that came from. Yeah, and their connected histories, sure. Um, for some of these materials, it seems like you maybe dipped into their world mostly for the book and to learn about them <laughs> for that purpose. Were there any crafts that were new to you that you've kept up since you since you've been done writing it? Yeah, so when I started the book, I was really, really rubbish at any kind of craft <laughs> sort of thing, <laughs> like really bad. Um, and so all of the crafts were new to me. I was a complete newbie at all of them. Um, but the one that I've stuck with is knitting. Mm-hmm. And I can't really tell you why, other than that, I found it extremely accessible. I found it extremely easy to teach yourself. Um, it's relatively cheap to get hold of the materials. You don't need any sort of special equipment like potter's wheels or furnaces and things. Um, you could just sit down in your house watching telly and get going. <laughs> um, and so that's the one that I've really stuck with. And I found it as I got more and more into it, it was the one that gave me permission to finally call myself a craft person. Whereas, like I say before, I would never have dared enter that world, much more of a kind of confident scientific person rather than an artistic person um but for the benefit of people listening you won't really be able to see this but the jumper that I'm wearing now the sweater that I've got on um is one that I've knitted myself so Karen will be able to see it um (laughs) and it's very satisfying yeah it's so satisfying and I've never really had that before of going through the process of putting the time in and the effort in and getting out on the other side something that is useful and valuable and nice to own and this is something I find so interesting about materials and objects is the different perceived value um one of the lessons that I learned from my craft people was that when you make something no matter what it is really it has such a higher value to us than if we just bought it you know from a shop um even though we don't necessarily spend as much money on it, the the kind of sentimental value that it has to us is so much higher. Um, you know, somebody baking you a cake for your birthday means so much more than, you know, them just sort of popping to the shop to go and get one. And it's because of the effort and the love and the time that has gone into that. And so I'm really interested in this idea of the different values that we that we give to materials. And going back to our conversation on plastics, I think that's something that we can really learn from the world of craft is how do we increase our perceived value of these materials? And if we do so, then maybe we can use them more sustainably and more mindfully than we are at the moment. Um, what is a material that didn't make it into the book that you're hoping to explore more in the future? One that I didn't, that I wasn't able to write about was weirdly human hair. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit left field, but, um, I a lot of the themes of the book, as listeners can probably um, get by now, is kind of intersections of materials and identity. And I think human hair is an amazing material in the sense that we pin so much of our identity on it during the time that it's on our heads. Um, And then when it's cut off our heads, it gains this almost grotesque, quite disgusting quality. Like if you find a human hair 
in your meal at a restaurant, you'll probably send it back and try and get a refund. <laughs> um, it has these and, and, you know, the idea of human hair at a hairdresser's, you know, all on the floor getting swept up into a great big pile. We find that quite repulsive. And that switch from being, you know, from the personal to the repulsive, I find really, really fascinating. So I would have loved to have explored the intersections between identity and hair and what that means to certain groups and certain individuals and also its significance to us as people and what it means to us and materially how interesting and useful it can be. Um, you know, at the moment, human hair is used in all sorts of areas. Um, we use it to make everything from kind of wigs to um, hair pieces to big sacks that we fill with human hair to deal with oil spills in the sea. Um, yeah, we use hair to make giant bags yeah 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 yeah. so when you have an oil spill at sea one of the best materials you can use to to soak it up is human hair so they quite often will will use that um to yeah deal with these spills because it is so absorbent of oil i had no idea Um, yeah it's a really really um it sits at that really sweet spot that I'm interested in between kind of culture, identity and materials and making. Um, so I wish that I could have done that. The reason I didn't include it is because it's quite materially similar to wool. And I really wanted to do wool to feature the knitting crafts and the felting crafts and all of that side. Um, but if I'd have been given 11 material chapters rather than 10, I would have definitely done human hair. So watch this space. I'll do something with it in the future. <laughs> That's great. I think that's a good place to stop. So yeah, thanks so much for talking with me today, Anna. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Anna and her book, we've linked to her website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And if you're itching to hear more about materials, check out Anna's podcast, also called Handmade. We've linked to that as well. On our page, you'll find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Our podcasting crew is made up of volunteers, so you can support us and the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>